0: there are heavy weapons that are going to come into the theater from the West, the, you know, P, I think it's uh, P P-109s from Norway, the Heimars. Um, I I just feel like sometimes the Ukrainian army is fighting with one hand tied behind their back while they wait for the equivalent or force of our force of artillery. Um, Can you speak to the, um, the mindset of those troops on the front lines, and you know the friends you may have that are that are in Severodonetsk or Lysychansk, and um, their their morale.
1: Uh, I, you know, it's only them who who can speak uh, to you know to provide you uh in entirety and understanding but as in you know I can call myself probably like an observer in the in this situation because unfortunately I'm not there. Um so uh, what uh I can say that uh their morale and mood uh you must understand that this is a war. You know we we, we lie love to speak about how uh Ukraine has this absolutely great morale but it's when you, when you pull your uh, uh your butt out one leg uh grabbed uh, over his you know strap on his uh, uh body armor out of the rab- rubble uh, uh, there is not much much morale in that. You must understand that and uh, no matter what is happening it's it's a uh, very heavy burden that they are uh, that they are bearing right now. Uh, so the moods are swinging from, uh, you know, uh, uh, when you see the news about humerus, um like it uh, oh. goes up and everyone like, is like, finally, we're going to get them. Uh, but then, you know, like, uh, like with alcohol or with drugs, you know, um, reality kicks in. Oh, we need three months or we need a month to deliver those. Or it's going to be only, only 12, 12 units. Um, it's going to help, but, uh, the war is on their shoulders. They're paying with their lives. And even though they understand that they, uh, like, you know, we have the understanding that, uh, whoever I speak with, even if, with the people who have, uh, been through terrible, uh, literal terrible things that, you know, it's, it's really hard to convey here. Uh, uh, they still have, you know. They they talk about no, it's uh, uh, it's not when uh, we don't say like it's not when we're gonna be over. They say it's uh, when we're gonna win. Uh, so in this term, the morale is high, uh, uh, but on that, uh, uh, it's it takes a lot of uh, tall courage. A lot of uh, people panic. Uh, people uh, people give up. Uh, people, you know, go through oh, so many things uh, that you as uh, sorry not you. I don't want to like uh, for you uh, when I say you. I mean like an average uh, person living in the in the country where there is no war, like me at this point. Uh, we we're not used to this, and uh, they go through all this crap. And it's for them, uh, they cannot just, you know, keep their mood up and their morale up just because only they're winning. Even if you're winning, even if everything is, you know, uh, seems to be great on a high level, uh, as an as a average infantryman, as an average soldier, uh, you see too much uh, fuck-ups on absolutely every level of your uh, of your existence, at that moment, at, at your existence. You see your body, you know, uh, you get your one hour of sleep and then you get your f- goddamn flies flying over all over your face uh, and you cannot fall asleep. And then there is someone, you know, uh, someone forgot that uh, he left uh, uh, his, I don't know, his uh, power bank under the mattress on which you're sleeping and he's going to wake you up. Uh, how, how about, you know, uh, morale all, all right now so this is a quite uh, uh intense uh situation where uh, no one uh, no one uh, there is there are not many people in the world uh who can withstand this uh, this this uh this war and you must understand that morale is winning. And when you see journalists, for example, taking an interview, I've seen multiple uh, rep- you know uh, reports where they show bad morale of the troops. Well, hell yeah! Uh in the, in the war, you will find troops who a bad morale. Uh, what about you? What about when you wake up and you have not, you had a toothache, for example, and then in the morning I don't know your cat jumped on you and and trying to you know ask you to get him food. How how about your morale uh, at that point? So it it's quite hard to estimate it, but uh, the only thing that unites every soldier right now and every person who, I, who I, I've spoken with. Uh, my buddy, my, my uh, you know people who I've met. I've met a lot of people, you know, remotely, uh, who uh, people ask me to help them uh, with their equipment. And uh, the only thing that unites us uh, right now and and uh, shows the morale is that when when we when we're asked when we talk about like when it's gonna be over, uh, we we talk about only one thing: it's uh, it's gonna be over when we win. It's not going to be over, you know, when the war is over. No, we don't speak about when, when the war is going to be over. We don't speak when, you know, uh, uh, when the war will stop. We talk about, no, when when we're going to win. And that's uh, the, uh, you know, the description of the morale that there is right now. And but. Don't try to, uh, you know, drop it to to the lower level when when you have your you didn't sleep the whole night. You had you were under the fire, and you have, you know, your body trying to get your power bank during the two hours that you have to sleep under from under your mattress. Uh, your morale is 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 not working pretty well at that point. But overall, it's it's all different. Thank you,
0: Constantine. That's a very visceral um, expression, and. I I thank you uh, for sharing that.
2: I, I was just going to say, le- left his power pack under under your mattress. That sounds one hundred percent like something that actually happened to you, and you're regurgitating it.
1: Yeah, that's that's uh, happened to me uh, so many times. Like uh, not exactly the power bank, but. Uh, <laughs> it's just you know one of the one million things that happen and that that's one one of the million things that i hear that is happening or as soon as you put your head
2: down and you 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 it feels like you you just close your eyes and there's a flashlight in your face you're on fire picket
1: yeah that's that's we all, i think we all went through this uh, who who have been uh, on, on that side of the river yeah there's uh there's definitely there's definitely very little
2: glamorous about much stuff being about being a soldier uh it, it it takes it takes a certain type and uh uh i look back at like some of the stuff i did and it wasn't like nearly as grindy as what you must have went through in in 2014 uh you know you're that's that's a whole other level and i definitely appreciate uh you coming in and sharing with everybody with that i don't know who was first either john ridge or brian cass i think we'll go john ridge talks all the time so we're going to go with brian i haven't seen you before
3: (laughs) i appreciate that um I'm, i'm in new jersey um there's a lot of ukrainians here um and my grandfather fought the Germans in World War I. Uh, my dad was on a destroyer in between Korea and Vietnam and didn't have to see any action. But I, want, I wanted to throw out something from the macro level because we have a lot of smart minds in the room as, as there always seems to be in the Walter Report. Does anyone think that NATO will become a semi-proactive um, entity? And um, you know, I know there's a lot of been there's been a lot of people that have been talking for the last uh, what what are you into this 120 months or 120 days now? Sorry, um, if NATO was a more proactive entity, would we be looking at a different landscape? And should NATO be a, a proactive entity as opposed to a defensive entity? And I just wanted to throw that out there. It hasn't been talked in, uh, about a lot. There's been a lot of frustration. Obviously, we're looking at genocide um, being perpetrated. So I, I just wanted to throw out, throw that out there. Uh, could could NATO be more no. proactive? And and if and if they were. How, how would we go about it, or is this just a pipe dream? We wouldn't.
4: Honestly, if, we wouldn't one, uh, if, if we were going to make NATO an offensive force, we probably would have uh, garnered that support after September 11th, and that's when we created what was referenced then as the Coalition of the Willing, which more or less was a combination of NATO and non-NATO nations. I think Japan jumped in on that even. That's the first time they've sent people overseas for anything uh, since World War II. But um, no, we're not going to rewrite the rules for NATO. NATO is a defensive organization. It is meant to deter wars, not to engage or create them. It has worked beautifully heretofore now.
3: Um, a lot Brian, people- just let me, just, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second because I saw the towers fall because they were about five miles from where I was. Um, and I lost, I, I didn't lose any friends necessarily, but. I knew friends that lost their entire companies. Can't an entity like NATO change over time? Or am I being naive here?
4: We we don't need to rewrite the rules for NATO. It would be a, a separate engagement altogether. That's kind of what I was getting at, was that we didn't rewrite the rules for NATO post 9-11. Uh, we just created a coalition of the willing and went to our allies, many of whom were NATO members, and said, hey, outside of NATO... We want to go kill some terrorists because they're doing bad things to civilians, and we don't agree with that. And we signed up a bunch of NATO members and non-NATO members, and that was a totally separate deal above and beyond what was going on with NATO. Whether you agree with it or not, all I'm saying is it was a a side issue. We created a coalition of people who were willing to engage in that. We are not going to create something similar here because Russia is a nuclear-armed state, as far as I know, they have more, uh, more bang in their nuclear arsenal than we do, uh, just by count of weapons involved. I, I don't know, kiloton, how things match out doesn't matter. We're not going to engage in creating some similar coalition of the willing or converting NATO into an offensive force because we're not interested in starting World War III. We didn't start this aggression. Russia likes to spin things around and say that they're only taking a defensive posture here because NATO was encroaching on their borders, blah, 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 blah. Um, the The fact of the matter is we didn't take an offensive kinetic action towards NATO, NATO excuse me, towards Russia. Russia invaded their neighbor. And if if at some point we have to you know defend ukraine more directly it it won't be because we turn nato into an offensive mechanism it's it's not the the international western war coalition it's a it's a defensive mechanism that was meant to deter russia from doing exactly what they're doing now and that's exactly why ukraine wanted to join nato because they feared something like this would happen All that said, multiple members who are in NATO currently are nuclear-armed states. And nuclear-armed states and democracies tend not to want to go to war with each other because very bad things happen when nuclear-armed states face off on a field of battle. Um, We're the only country, the country I belong to, is the only country who's ever used a nuclear weapon on human beings. And having seen what that does on such a large and indiscriminate scale. I hope it never, ever happens again, and we need to do everything we can to deter that from happening again. The most likely place that would happen in the world right now is the country that has currently been invaded by a genocidal dictator. So anything we can do to deter him from thinking he needs to use nuclear weapons is probably a good thing for the world at large. And I'm off on a tangent here, so... uh, I'll shut up now, and maybe we can get to another hand or two. Uh, Gurney, Goose, Alex. Actually, uh, John was next. Oh, John. Sorry. John Gurney, Goose, yeah, Alex. He, he's way down in the list there, so... He was up at the top, and I was looking at the bottom two rows.
5: Uh, thank you, Ryan and Um To briefly circle back around, I missed a good chunk of the, of the drone conversation, but on the topic of anti-drone warfare... There, there would seem to me to be two components to that. On the one hand, you obviously have your direct counterme- direct countermeasures to either destroy the drone or return it to its sender, or in some way, you know, disable it or interdict it, you know, from performing its, you know, design function. The other component, though, that I'm, I'm really curious about is detection. Obviously, with the smaller, low-flying drones, you know, infantry on the ground that can hear them. And respond accordingly with whatever means have at the disposal and larger high altitude drones that falls within you know the realm of more conventional anti-aircraft warfare measures but what I've, i'm curious about is are there any technologies or systems in development to allow you know say you know automated detection of these smaller you know infantry deployable drones like little quadcopters um, you know, to essentially, you know, kind of provide all weather, you know, detection, you know, independent of the infantry's ability to actually hear said drones.
4: Yep. For the uh, DJI products, definitely. There's a commercial off the shelf product that will track their electronic serial number, their point of origin, their point of destination, their entire flight path. It will also give you uh gps coordinates on the drone operator not just the drone itself so that's the thing with some of those drones you can set them up and calibrate them my brother's trying kind to of, kind of a drone geek so i have some firsthand experience with these things um he's both built handmade ones from the motor to the little control panel and you know bolted together the carbon fiber frame and put it literally put it all together himself um and also the DJI products, but with the DJI stuff, you can calibrate that and set it down in the middle of the road somewhere, and move a quarter of a mile away from the takeoff point and launch the drone. So you're nowhere near where it took off or where it lands, and still operating it. Um, those things can operate up to a mile away, at least from where their their base point is. And if you modify uh, some of the equipment on them, like the transmitter or the receiver. I think if you increase the transmitter power, you can get them or change the frequencies on which they operate. You can get them to operate for much larger distances than they're licensed for by the FCC here in the U.S. Um, so yeah, you can detect them. Some of the more hobby ones are the toy drones that don't have some of the, uh, programming in them like the stuff you would just buy and give a kid to go crash on your on his neighbor's roof are not really going to transmit tech uh, information that could be picked up and tracked but definitely those dji products and stuff of that caliber and higher are probably going to be sending out some signals that can be picked up i think uh maria aid and i don't know if Yehuda did directly and i don't know how much he would even talk about this Um, because we don't want to tip our hat to people that might be listening here and, and, you know, gathering info. But I think they sourced some kind of drone that's actually made in Canada that doesn't have some of those uh, detectability pitfalls that the DJI products do. That is uh, Chinese manufactured equipment, and the Chinese government has access to DJI flight logs. They share all that information with local authorities in countries in which their product is retailed so they could conceivably scoop up all that data uh, from flight patterns being flown in Ukraine and hand it over to the Russians if they wanted to. It's not out of the realm of possibility. I thought they were doing that. Uh, They probably are. I just wasn't going to make fanciful claims here that I couldn't immediately back up with an article if somebody questioned me. But yes, they are doing that. With uh thank you, Ron. 95% certainty.
5: Um, as a follow-up to that, are you aware of any, shall generalized systems or, or technologies that would allow for, you know, automated detection of, you know, drones generally not just commercial off the shelf ones, but military, you know, grade drones that are not necessarily susceptible to some it, of these vulnerabilities? It would
4: probably have to be some kind of like radar technology, not some kind of in order for them to detect something like that, it has to be emitting a signal and transmitting some data. That's all they're doing with these off-the-shelf systems that police departments buy here in the U.S. They can set it up at a football game and turn it on. And if some jackass tries to fly his drone into the stadium and, you know, make a stunt, they have a record of everything that he did and they know where he's from, they know who has it, they know they get all that And it's by design, that's how they're programmed and set up. If somebody like my brother were, you know, to set up their own drone or wire up their own, nobody can really trace that. They're pretty untraceable because it's not emitting a signal that has all of that metadata, so to speak. Um, So, yeah, there's workarounds for it. I suspect these are the ones or similar stuff, a little more individually built or that doesn't contain all that uh, safety mechanisms because it's not intended for Sale in the US or in Canada or places where they have rules and regulations on this stuff, you can just disable all that equipment. The reason DJI put that in that technology into their drones is because that's what's required by the FCC and the FAA in order for them to sell a drone over a certain size because conceivably if somebody wanted to do something horrible with that they could fly one into a commercial jet engine and you know kill a bunch of civilians so they want to be able to trace those things major airports like you know san francisco or la or chicago or um, you know the dc area any big airport is going to have some countermeasures already in place that kind of keeps some of this stuff from happening they can kind of interrupt that crap from the get-go but they have stuff we don't know about. I, I don't have any security clearances. I don't know anything special like that. Um, I'm just speaking off of what I know from open source intelligence information. Um, and it's not intelligence. It's just geek hobby background info. Um,
2: I actually saw uh, a video not long ago. That I, it was a Canadian airport. I can't remember. But they were using the fal- the Falconeers, to engage drones, so these guys Definitely. that have falcons, and I don't know if the the listeners weren't aware, uh, some airports will actually employ a guy that has trained falcons go out there and kind of scare the birds out of the aerodrome, and uh, they they had views of these falcons taking out uh, domestic drones. You know, knocking them out of the air. Uh, just as an aside, one of the listeners had uh, sent me the article uh, about the uh, the anti-drone uh, uh, in Israel. Uh, that's iron. That what, what the hell is it? That's iron laser, and uh, yeah, I guess you could use that on drones. But that thing's made to take missiles out of the air.
4: Here's here's the deal with that. Those are ground based systems. They're highly energy intensive. The U.S. military has some that are not ground based. Um, They're already being put on KC-135s, and I only know that because my – I'm not going to tell you why I know that. Never mind. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) uh, let's
2: put that for ourselves. But uh, the the iron laser, uh, if you hit a drone with that, it'll probably atomize it.
4: Yeah, you can blow them out of the sky. They've got laser technology, military grade, that's meant to take down – Uh, like shoulder fire type stuff to, I I believe it's probably more of a, like a dazzler technology, but it it operates in the infrared spectrum. And uh, people who were working around it were warned not to go out into the uh, operating bay where they were installing said equipment on military platforms. Um, But I know the technology exists. I don't know a whole lot about it because I'm not supposed to know about it because that's how those things work.
5: Um, I believe that um, there is currently a directed energy variant of the uh, of the Shorad derivative of the striker, which is a fifty kilowatt laser mounted on it um, to destroy UAVs and uh, rocket artillery and mortar rounds. It's still in the in the testing and prototyping phase at the moment.
4: Is that some kind of like bolt-on panel that would look like a external fuel cell? If you know what I'm talking about, or is uh, that something that's integrated into the airframe itself?
5: Well, the Striker's a vehicle, like it's not an aircraft.
4: Ah, uh, gotcha. I get. I I know what you're talking about now. Sorry, overlooked it. Um, yeah, things like that are incredibly uh, energy intensive. So you need um, some kind of power generation. I believe. Uh, oh, with that, Alex nerd, W. Nerd. Yeah, enough of nerd hour. Let's uh, let's yeah. go to hands. <laughs> Alex
2: W, how are you doing this evening? I am sick as a dog.
6: Um, I was just going kind of to trying you to be punny? No, I'm, I'm sick. Well, sick I was father.
4: referring to your avatar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Everybody We're should be very, very
6: happy you <laughs> don't have COVID. an aggressive, my partner. Um... I was just going to talk about NATO briefly, and and how our alliance structures. Um, this gentleman asked before, you know, what can we jazz up NATO?
5: Um,
6: I, I think that might be the wrong, not necessarily the wrong way of thinking, but the, the wrong sort of question. We often get questions about, you know, should you know what can we do about the UN? What can we do about NATO? I would suggest that. These structures are the way they are and are unlikely to change in the time scene simply because they have so many participants that it's virtually impossible to change those structures. What we have seen is the development of alliances and agreements, primarily driven by the US, outside of those structures that can work in such a way to leverage influence and soft power in order to push those organisations into action. And as an example that's specifically related to Ukraine, um, if you go through the list of the countries that were first to throw their support behind Ukraine outside of Central Europe, you come up with a list that looks something like U.S., U.K., Australia, New Zealand, Japan, uh, Canada, sorry, right? and and Japan as well. That's the five eyes plus one. Um, so those countries that arrangement has clearly played some role in leveraging influence and soft power in order to achieve a a, a policy outcome that was desired by all those countries. So if you see what I'm driving at, things have developed. You know, um, if if you think back to um, other wars in the last 30 years, they sort of degenerated into um, sort of bureaucratic nightmares because there was no... You know everybody got lost in the in the in the bureaucracy of these you know exactly the sort of criticisms that people are making you know the u n doesn't do anything these sort of things, so these treaty structures have developed in order to make sure that those you know that things are achieved outside outside of those structures so I think that the things that the criticisms that have been leveled in the past have been learned from, and you are seeing a product and a consequence of that play out now, where the US has been able, you know, and other countries have been able, um, uh, more rapidly respond to developing situations. I hope that makes sense.
0: So that's something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently. Alex, would you agree that those countries that responded are simply a response to Russian aggression? In what sense do you mean the um, what do you mean, in what sense do I mean, Russia invaded Ukraine and they're committing genocide? And I heard yeah, you read yeah, about countries that were somehow involved in I don't know what, but the response is what you're focusing on and not the aggression. Perhaps I didn't make myself. So, so, so let me just take a step back. Those countries are
6: part of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing arrangement, right? And that involves intelligence sharing at the very highest level when the New York Times and things like that are publishing articles about, a, um, a, uh, about intelligence coming together to indicate that Russia would attack, what they mean is that the Five Eyes were collating that information and it became apparent that Russia would attack. Now, yes, it is a response to the aggression, the illegal invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent genocidal acts of the Putin regime. However, they were able to respond through an alliance structure that had been formed previously in order to share information and, other in- and act in other interests.
0: Does that make it more clear for you? They were allied as a defensive unit, not as an offensive unit. So I'm not sure where you're going,
4: but please proceed. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure we're we're talking past each other here instead of to each other, yeah, Alex was responding to the previous question from a different listener about why we don't uh, upgrade NATO into an offensive unit, and that sounds like an international army to me. Um, yeah. you're going to be hard pressed to convince who agreed to NATO as a defensive mechanism to go on what they would see as an offensive war against Russia. So it's it's, it's a bit of a non-starter. Nobody's interested in being dragged into offensive actions due to their NATO membership. They're just trying to defend their own borders. And we can create offensive coalitions if we need to outside of NATO with NATO members and with non-NATO members like Japan. Um, all that said, this is kind of a red herring conversation we're off in the weeds here because nobody's going to create a coalition to invade Russia. That's why Russia has a massive nuclear arsenal, and that's why we have been hesitant to institute a no-fly zone. If Russia didn't have all their nukes, you bet your ass the United States would have imposed a no-fly zone months ago. Uh, so we're, I think we're. Still at- we're no,
6: our- oh. That's absolutely right, Brian. My only my my point really was when you boil it, down, boil it down, is that when people make when people ask these questions or make criticisms of international s- structures, there are already parallel structures in place that have been developed from. Well, and they were developing thinking of working working around those the the log jams that occur within those structures. Yeah, we. we I'm we not suggesting
4: see- that weak NATO to to create an offensive coalition. That's, that's not what NATO was designed for. And people would drop out of NATO membership before people, people now are clamoring to join NATO for a good reason because they want to be defended from aggressive action and actors like Russia. So nobody's going to be clamoring to join NATO. if NATO suddenly changes its charter to pursue offensive actions uh, to defend non nato members it's it's you yeah. know
6: <laughs> and and the other the other criticism often is oh you know the u n security Council doesn't do anything, it's all deadlock blah blah blah. <laughs> well, you've got these parallel structures that allow you to um, bring soft power and influence to the table even without necessarily having that you know to influence how those bodies operate anyway, as you say, it's a very um, very esoteric
0: discussion. But. Uh, appreciate your commentary. Can you name one country that wants to join the new Soviet Union, aka Russia? Can you name one country that is excited about joining Russia? It's not I'm, happening. I'm really struggling to see your point here, Liberal.
6: I'm, I'm not sure why you feel you have to attack me. I'm actually feeling a bit attacked. What's going on, mate?
2: That's why yeah, I think we can we can put the whole NATO NATO thing to bed. We yeah. kind of uh, Yeah, I think it's especially I think it's here uh, now.
3: Let's keep uh, on the
4: conversation. You know, Brian, did you have another follow-up question?
3: I, I did, Ryan, and thank you. I, I know that you guys know Patrick Fox, who was a contributor here uh, for a while and on multiple other um spaces. Yeah, he drops
4: in from time to time still.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that, Ryan. And I, and I totally appreciate your take. And I wasn't saying that NATO should proactively invade other countries. I am saying I was just like positing or throwing it out there. And I'm asking for your input. Would Obviously, we'd be better off as a planet if NATO was a little bit more proactive. And it doesn't have to mean boots on the ground. It doesn't have. You're, you're, Brian. You're drawing a very, very literal distinction there. I'm, I'm saying, is there another way that we could have truncated this war? Is there another way we could have preempted this? Um, the, uh, calling it a war or genocide. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying. Ryan, in in your perfect mind's eye, is NATO what it should be? Could NATO be something different? No, NATO exactly inter- is exactly. Don't interrupt me. Just let me finish. Look, three-year-olds are being raped, okay, and and they're not being raped in your neighborhood. They're being raped in someone else's neighborhood, and people are being slaughtered in someone else's neighborhood. So it's very easy for us to answer these questions on Twitter, but I. I, I I, OK, I get what you're I'm saying. just going to I'm, I'm going to end it with that. I'm just going to sit back and listen. Thank OK,
4: you. Um, you asked if NATO was what it should be. Uh, I would say, yes, NATO is exactly what it should be. Some of the uh, issues or uh, growing pains, for lack of a better term, that we're having right now in NATO member states ability to contribute surplus weaponry, or uh, not even necessarily surplus, but to have enough weaponry on hand, military-grade equipment that could be donated to Ukraine at a time when it's needed, we are in a bit of a pinch because some NATO members were not contributing their full 2% of GDP or whatever the you know contractual obligation is for a period of time. That's water under the bridge at this point. Yes, they should have been contributing a, a larger number. No, they weren't. But it's neither here nor there at this point in time. It, it is what it is now. And what needs to happen is we need to defend Ukraine or we need to enable the Ukraine to defend itself against Russian aggression. So, um I, I do wish that France was more flush in military equipment right now and a, a bunch of other NATO members and we're happily sending more to the front line in Ukraine. But uh, wanting one hand and shit in the other, as they say, and see which one fills up first. We're in a pinch right now and people in Ukraine are dying. Children are being raped exactly like you said. I, I feel you. I agree with you. Um, but, you know, just because we want all these countries in Europe to give more weapons to Ukraine doesn't mean they have the capacity or the um, the spine to do it, the, the political fortitude. And if they can't do it, then by God, America can, we've, we've got all the weapons we could ever need. And then some, and um, I don't think that beefing up NATO is a solution to this problem. We, we cannot engage in an offensive action against Russia without risking a, a larger global expansion of this war. We don't want to risk a nuclear war, and we don't want to face off with Russia unless they invade our territory. That's how NATO was written, well, as a defensive mechanism, if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And America and a couple of other nations are the only people that carry the really big stick. And we provided nuclear umbrella, which was a deterrent to nuclear expansion. We didn't want everybody to think that they needed to develop their own nukes. And everybody who has all these problems, if you go back a couple of hundred years in European history, people have been killing each other over there, over the pettiest of things for a really long time. And this last post-World War II window in Europe, which was provided by organizations like NATO, have given a more recent segment of history and people living in current, people in living memory don't remember Europe at war with itself and killing people because of what we got in NATO. And that was a nuclear deterrent and a deterrent from Russian expansion. I don't think we should mess with that. Uh, we don't need that in order to aid Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is doing just fine. We need to send them more weapons and training.
2: Okay. Uh, before we unleash our uh, resident subject matter expert on uh, geopolitical matters and uh, political science, I uh, it is uh, way past my bedtime. It's a school night. Um, And I have to get up at O Dark Stupid. So I uh, wish everybody here uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and I bid you adieu. Uh, you're in the good hands of uh, Ryan and a couple of the ghost uh, de facto uh, co-hosts here. Again, we've been having trouble with the space. So uh, by all means, if you can't come up and speak and you have a question, Please uh, DM uh, Ryan, uh, Colby, um, Liberal uh, Gurney. We we we've all we've all hosted, and uh, we'll make sure that your uh, your voice is heard. Uh, with that, uh, good night, everybody, and
4: uh, Colby. Thank you, Moose. Good uh, night, nice. Moose. If, and if I could interject one more, real quick, the we got lulled into a sense of of complacency and i and when i say we i mean nato nations that weren't contributing their two percent and i think everybody's eyes have been woken up now and nato membership is reinvigorated about why they are nato members and why they do need to contribute that two percent and i'll cede the floor to cody colby colby i'm sorry i've called you cody twice now and i promise i know your name i'm i just slip of the tongue all good
7: thanks Ryan thanks Moose
4: um NATO is the
7: most successful military Alliance in human history and the fact that Russia is currently invading Ukraine is not an indictment of NATO it's not a failing of the Alliance or the structure of the Alliance it is a failure of the current political leadership of the Alliance those are two different things and this is a point that uh, uh other s- speakers have uh, made in the past that part of the reason why nato is successful and um enduring in ways that other alliances have not been because it is a alliance of democratic states and being a democracy means that the people of all those respective member states have the right to elect people that are, quite frankly, clueless and completely unqualified to be leading um, major powers. Uh, Our current leaders leave a lot to be desired. I've said this in the past. For the most part, I believe that we are currently being led by fundamentally unserious people relative to the caliber of person that was leading uh, our countries back in the 80s when the Cold War was won. But it is what it is. Um, we uh, were led by who we're led by and uh, we have to sleep in that bed now that we've made it for ourselves. Um, It's unfortunate, but that's the way it is, that we have people like uh, Chancellor Scholz, who's currently uh, governing Germany. That's obviously a very significant problem. Um, It's unfortunate that Congress passed over $20 billion in new military aid and Uh, President Biden has so far not made use of very much of that $20 billion uh, when Ukrainian children, as has been stated, are being raped and murdered right now as we speak. And that money was appropriated by Congress, and we've seen very little new hardware forthcoming um, from the United States. So hopefully we will see further action because it is obviously very much needed. Um, To go back to the previous question again about what could have been done, well, again, there was a failure of political decision-making not to provide Ukraine with more assistance before the invasion started. It's great that Five Eyes in the United States um, came to the determination and put out publicly that they believed that Russia was going to invade, but after that decision was made, they did not take any further action to dissuade Russia from doing what they believed to be imminent. If they believed the Russian invasion was imminent, why did they not arm Ukraine beforehand and wait until the invasion had already happened? Uh, only the Baltic states really uh, provided assistance before the shooting started and everybody else was caught with their pants down. And it took weeks to get uh, hardware into Ukraine to help them defend their country. And that is a political failure of the leaders that we here in the West elected into office. And that is their failure. It's our failure as well, because again, we should, we need to do better as citizens of democratic countries and elect more serious people who spend more time thinking about these very important issues.
4: I, I think you nailed a lot of it on the head. And I'm going to offer a counterpoint here, not because I want to... Uh spar with you but just to offer some alternative insight i think the argument or the calculus uh for not arming ukraine was that they didn't want to provoke russian aggression and uh we've all since learned that the only thing that provokes russian aggression most the thing that provokes russian aggression most easily is weakness or uh, a lack of weapons on the other side. So, uh we we learned the hard way that uh you know, peace through strength is sometimes the the best option, but yeah, I think the the powers that be at the time were were trying to claim that to uparm Ukraine to head off this war would only incentivize russia further to think that they needed to invade ukraine and yeah then it's catch 22 situation uh portland go ahead and then colby if you want to cut me up go right ahead as well no i i would i would just say that
7: uh you know that logic is faulty again because uh if you believe if if you believe that the invasion is imminent then arming ukraine has no impact uh because Russia has already made the decision to invade. The invasion is imminent. So how can you, um, yeah. you know, increase exactly. the likelihood of, but of aggression?
4: It was imminent. All we could really do was, was throw out all the intel and to try to tell the world, here's what they're going to, you know, here's the scam they're about to pull. Everybody beware. And we did that as best we could. I, I'll give Western intelligence gathering methods credit for that. Uh, I think us showing our cards... Uh, at least woke up the world to what was going on and kind of cut off the Russian disinformation at the knees, I would hope. Um, Portland, can you go ahead? I know you had your hand up, and then I want to give Ace a chance.
8: Um, yeah, I'm I'm going to disagree in some details with Colby, um, but not, not that strongly. Uh, there were countries... Uh, notably the UK that were stepping up weapons deliveries to the Ukraine uh, to the Ukrainians before the war. Uh the UK delivered around Yeah,
7: sorry, that's a a mission on, on my part. Um uh I, I don't want to leave the United Kingdom out, um one of my uh countries as well. Um so you're you're correct on, on that point. Uh, the Baltics weren't the only
8: ones. Um the United Kingdom is in that list as well there there were definitely some countries that that should have gotten their act together. um but from from where I'm sitting uh, the the intelligence game that was played in the run-up to the war was an absolute blinder. It was unbelievably well executed. Um, it was so well executed that I was halfway certain that it had to be a setup job i was just like there is no way they are this good and it turned out well actually yes they are the problem that you have to deal with is that it's very very hard to threat message and all of these publications of uh what we knew about their plans to invade. Uh, Those were deliberate attempts at threat messaging. It was warning the Russians, hey, we know what you're up to. We're paying attention. We're taking this very seriously. Uh, You are not going to get an easy ride out of this one. The problem with threat messaging is that it requires you to assume that the other side is fundamentally rational and in touch with reality. And... The the evidence to date is that the senior echelons of the Russian leadership fundamentally is not uh, that they. I could give you so many examples. So it was an extremely well executed uh, threat messaging operation that failed in one specific crucial way, which was making the gamble that Putin was a smart guy and he could be threat messaged. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, w- w- relating this back to the original question about the limitations of the NATO alliance, uh, I, I am looking at this and saying, this is the best hand I have ever seen an international alliance play. They, they have played it incredibly well and i can't rightly see what possible change to practice or doctrine we could make that wouldn't either spiral this thing completely out of control and exchange a bad situation for a catastrophic civilization ending situation or um leave the Ukrainians to their fate. And I think looking at how this has been managed every step of the way, yeah, there are some details that I would like to have changed. I would like the Ukrainians to be getting more, um, but big picture brushstrokes. I, I don't think I'd change anything.
4: Yeah. I, I, uh, tend to agree with Portland as well. You guys both make some pretty good points. Um, I think we did our best to uh, cut off their information war at the knees. As soon as we realized what was going to happen, and that we couldn't pour weapons in there with any certainty that um, things would go the way they did, I'm I'm a little regretful on behalf of my you know country that we didn't stick around in Kyiv and uh, support them a little more wholeheartedly at first. But uh, thank God for Zelensky. That, I'll leave it at that. Uh, Brian go ahead.
3: Yeah, I I did hear someone say that, you know, we we didn't do anything building up, up to this and look, I, I don't want to get into politics here, but let's remember that uh, one of our presidents recently was first impeached because he withheld uh military funding from Ukraine. That was the first impeachment. So, um let's not forget that that, folks um but uh yeah i I just i don't want that to be overlooked and for people to say well we didn't do anything three or four years ago um we 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 were doing things and and, uh, military funding has been flowing from the united states to ukraine for quite a while and also let's not forget the training from the uk from poland from canada and from the United States that's been going on the the training as it relates to boots on the ground and helping out the Ukrainian soldiers. And by the way, that is not uh, to take away any credit from the Ukrainians on their own merits. Um, There's a lot to be said about training, but there's also a lot to be said about uh, the people that are putting their lives on the line. So let's, let's not say that there wasn't aid four or five years ago. There was aid. Thank you for
4: highlighting that. Um, Colonel Spencer, who's in here frequently is a uh, part of the California guard and they have been affiliated or tasked, or I don't know, attached, whatever you want to call it to the Ukrainian military since the nineties, actually. Um, I think we immensely stepped up our support and cross training with the Ukrainians, uh, post 2014 after the revolution of dignity. And, um, the kind of purging and reconstituting of of the Ukrainian military, the post Yanukovych era. Um, But yeah, I'm going to totally give credit to Colby's country of origin. uh, Operation Unifier and the Canadians, you know, deserve all the credit. Uh, America and the Guard from California did a lot, but I I think uh, Canada deserves some credit for pitching in and seeing what was coming as well. Uh, We have four requests for speakers right now and a full panel. So if anybody has questions, please raise your hand. Um, If anybody doesn't have a question and doesn't mind dropping down for a second so we can cycle some new people in, um, I'm happy to bring you guys all back up. I know everybody here is a very frequent contributor, so I don't want to drop anybody. I just want to cycle. Oh, Colonel Spencer is here. Yeah, I might drop some people if I have to. Hang on here. John, good evening. Thank you for joining us, if you can hear me.
9: Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, Yeah, so you're right. The California National Guard, what they call a state sponsorship for decades, and uh, like you said, U.S. support, especially Special Forces and others, really uh, up into the war, uh, lots of, but multiple countries, like you said. So I'm I'm actually sitting in Poland, coming back from Ukraine. i um, having spent a few days there studying the Battle of Kiev, like everywhere from um, really the entire battle and learning so much about that that such an important moment in this war. Since there's you know much fighting still to be had, but um, so I'm I'm open to take questions about that. You know, I'm got about 30 minutes before I board my plane, trying to make my way back home.
4: I had no idea you were traveling. I guess that explains uh, your absence, and maybe you haven't been absent. I was gone from the space myself for the last couple of days, so I've kind of been intermittently involved. Um, I don't have any immediate questions. I'm sure some other people do on the panel. Um, I'm intensely curious, but I'm sure everybody else can probably pepper you with questions for the next 20 or 30 minutes. Liberal Go ahead, and then John.
0: Colonel Spencer, thank you for staying awake. Um, Do you have an opinion on the battle at Severodonetsk, and if the Ukrainians are content with pulling back strategically, falling back, not retreating, but falling back and um, creating a kill box in Severodonetsk?
9: Yeah, so um, like Ryan said, I've been kind of absent, so I've I've literally been engrossed in... um you know, going, getting into Ukraine, you know, through Lviv to Kyiv and spending time with all the fighters, territorial defense and commanders and everybody walking through what happened in that battle. I, I'm not as up to date in Severodon yes, yet. I, I'm going to come back back up to date with it. Um, you know, I did speak to, like, Malcolm and Nicole, a couple other people that we know in the group. Uh, it, it's a heavy fight. Um, I don't you know, content to fall back. Like you said, there's variations of military tactics and where there's um, offense, defense, and then defense, you have various forms like delay and retrograde and things like that. Um, I I know that it's difficult to pull back and create a a kill zone in your own city. Um, We have seen in the beginning stage of this that exactly that, right? So they pull back. Let the Russians come in. I think their comfort, and then dominate them in urban warfare tactic. Um, which they did. Um, but this it, the lines are so, so um, day to day, hour to hour, that it's really hard to tell. And talking to people like language learner and others, trying to keep track of you know open source what we know, what we don't know, what the plans are, is really difficult. So, you know, really I can't answer it to fully without coming back up the speed on the exact tactical actions happening on the ground
4: um i've got a quick question there were some reports that in the initial days the uh fsb or somebody sent uh specific kill squads i believe chechens after Zelensky himself to try and
9: decapitate the leadership um and it was said that they they had gotten pretty close at at least